Hello, this is Lunar Poetry Podcast. My name is David Turner. How are you lot doing today? I've got some good news to share. We've been awarded uh, the bronze in the recent British Podcast Awards Represent category. The Represent category was set up to recognise podcast producers that have gone out of their way to reach audiences often ignored by established media outlets, so a huge honour. I'll be honest with you, I still haven't stopped smiling since finding out that we were shortlisted, so a big thank you goes out to all of the guest hosts that have helped to make the series what it is. Hopefully I'll be bringing you more awards-based good news in the next few weeks, but to keep up to date with all of our news and latest episodes, follow us at silent underscore tongue on Twitter, Lunar Poetry Podcast on Facebook and Instagram, or subscribe to us wherever you download your podcasts. Today's episode is in two parts. With the aid of our Arts Council funding, I travelled up to Leeds to speak with two poets and theatre makers, and coming up are two really interesting conversations about the relationship between poetry and writing for the stage. But before I introduce the first guest, I'd just like to thank the man behind Nymphs and Fugs, a native of Wakefield, Matt Abbott, who was a huge help with the planning behind my trip to West Yorkshire. First up is Zodwa Nyoni. We talk about the role that poetry plays in her own practice, the links between spoken word shows and musicals, and the differences between casting poets and actors in her plays. Zodwa's next play, Ode to Leeds, opens soon at the West Yorkshire Playhouse. If you like what we do, then do me a favour and tell your friends about us in person or via social media. You can also find a full transcript of this episode via the link in the episode description. Here's Zodwa. Hi, I'm Zodwa Nyoni. I'm a playwright and poet. Uh, The first poem I'm going to do for you is called At Ugogo's House, and Gogo is the word for grandmother in Debele. At Ugogo's house in the township of Ngulumane, we ate with our hands. We'd watch her cook millimeal over an electric two-plate stove. Slowly she would sprinkle, vuvuzela, letting the pounded corn fall between her fingers into the pot, thickening the mixture. When ready, she'd dish the meal into communal bowls. Together, we'd pick sticky segments and roll them with our fingers, dip them into plates of fried spring greens and stewed beef. Supper at grandmother's house was eaten while sat on woven straw mats laid on concrete kitchen floors. As we pulled our fingers back from our lips, Ukoko would smile and say, Abandwana, Abandwana, Bami, children of my children, this is how I raised your mother. Eat plenty and be well. Thank you very much, Ludva. Since uh, this particular episode is sort of a mini showcase mm-hmm. on West Yorkshire. Yes. It might be nice to talk about the poetry scene in... Well, we'll talk about Leeds because we're yeah. in Leeds today. What are the opportunities like to read work in public and what's the, the scene? I don't like using that word scene, but I don't know um, what else to use. But. I think, it, you know what, it, it, it has its, its moments. I think at the middle we seem to be in a very good moment where there are platforms, there are events, and what kind of trying to build up to, um, so this, the city is applying for the Capital of Culture for 2023. So I think there's a big push to try and support artists. And for example, because I primarily kind of work in theatre, so you look at places like, you know, the West Yorkshire 
Playhouse, which is kind of going through redevelopment and looking at putting in a studio space, which they they don't have, you know. So if you have a studio space, you're then able to kind of make more new work. And there, there are kind of spoken word events. Some are kind of monthly. There's like the Sunday practice, which is monthly, and that's for you know poets and singers and rappers. And there's a live band, um, and that's at a bar called Cellar Bar. And uh, there's another one called Fictions of Every Kind, which I think is bi-monthly, and that's by Sarah Jane Bradley. Um, so there's kind of there's different things. It depends on what you're interested in. So for example, if you're into like performance art, there's a live art bistro, and we've just had the Transform Festival uh, of New Work. So there's quite a few things I think that's happening. I think what we're getting better at consistency. Because I think what we used to have was you have events kind of that pop up and die out quite quickly. I think what we still need to do is look at having areas around the city and organizations kind of communicating a lot more with each other because you'll find that if you're kind of in the north you, you'll know what's in the north and then you will know what's in the south and i think we need more i guess it's expansive networks but for the most part i think it's a very supportive scene so do you feel like it's more of a perhaps a lack of venues or permanent venues to put work on yeah. i think so i think the artists are definitely there i think you will always always find artists i think it is about platforms and consistent platforms existing it's not just about let's say x organization having its own agenda and then they get what they want for that period of time they go okay thank you bye and then next thing you know it's like the new scheme you don't get stuck in that kind of rotation of schemes as an artist you want to see how you can always grow because if you've invested time into this it's not a joke this is my job i want it to succeed as much as you would support any other occupation this needs to be supported as much so the impression I've got since I've been here, which has not been very long at all, there seems to be quite a more open crossover, whereas it seems to be in London, London particularly, where, yeah. I, where I spend most of my time and where I live. People are predominantly, they'll say I'm a spoken word artist, but it seems to be up here, people are a bit more open about working in theatre and, and incorporating spoken word and doing other things. Is that a true impression or is it just I'd what I've come across? I'd say so. I guess from kind of my experiences and looking at the artists that I know, you are finding, for example, you know, if you look at an artist like Testament, who is a rapper and a beatboxer and a poet, and his show had all of that in it, and that was at the West Yorkshire Playhouse, but then also toured and did, you know, a festival. And I'm also quite interested in seeing kind of what other work people are making, and I think you have to have an appreciation of that broad spectrum of work. I think if you look at kind of Transform Festival, there was quite a mix of audiences, and I think that's what you get here. We're making work. There's a respect of the work that people are making. I think for me, I genuinely go, I wanna, I'm curious about you as an artist. I'm interested in how you grow as an artist and what you go into. I'm interested in collaborating and seeing how I can push my traditional background in, as, as a writer. How does that mix with beatboxing? How does that mix with a performance artist? Or how does that mix with a dancer? I think that makes for better work, I guess. Could it also feed into the point you made at the start there as well about there being perhaps a lack of dedicated venues? Yeah. Whilst it's nice to have dedicated venues and support, yeah. one thing that does come out of not having that is you, that you mix you audiences much together. more, don't you? Yeah, I think you, you have to band together. And I think when you do band together, it, it's hard because you're all kind of competing for space and time and funding. And you want to say, oh, let's all band together and support each other. But even within that, you go, oh, okay, there's limited resources. How do we all support each other and get like our five minutes at the same time? But what there is here and what I have seen and what I appreciate about being in Leeds is that I will go 
see a performance artist and tomorrow they'll say no maybe that what you make is not my type of work but I'm here for you to come and see your work. When you approach a new project is it predominantly from a theatre background and at what point does spoken word or poetry enter into your practice? It's sort of weird because I, I, I started doing poetry first and I did that for back in five years or so and then there was like a clear break when I I went into theatre and specifically I went in as an actor and then learned about kind of technical theatre and then I realised that I wanted to, wanted to explore writing for theatre and I did my undergraduate then went on to do my MA in writing and I was like I love theatre I want to make theatre and at that point I was really interested in kind of character development and dialogue and I think poetry then kind of took like a back burner for a while but it would kind of creep its way in so when I look at like my first it's always creeping it all creeps right back in. in it always comes back in <laughs> I think it was it was needing to learn how to let the two things kind of coexist next to each other I think because I'd studied poetry and I'd performed poetry for so long I got I had that and I knew how that functioned then I went to learn theatre and I learned its conventions I was like okay how do I put these two things together so when I look at for example my first full-length play Boy Boy's Dead and that was about a, um, a jazz singer so when I look at all the music that I wrote for that show it was actually poems that <laughs> then a music director that just turned into songs and then the play following that which was Nine Lives that was a series of monologues and they were all connected via a poem that ran through it when I look at Otali specifically, there's a quality in the dialogue and character and poetry within that piece. And I think I was slowly kind of working my way towards this piece. And it feels like with this one, I have cracked it because they are both forms that you have to play with and discover. So there was a time when I was trying to force the poetry to fit into, you know, a three-act structure for, you know, for theatre and that, that, it just wasn't working. Like the play just wasn't working. Either the, the characters were suffering or the poetry was suffering. And then I just had to abandon it all and try and employ, essentially what I, I kind of did a sequence of 16 poems. And in between that, I then created drama. So I then use, I guess it's, it's a poetic structure with theatre aesthetics within it. It's interesting to hear you say that because I suppose a lot of people listening at the moment will be perhaps considering going to Edinburgh mm. in the summer or yeah. I suppose the applications would be in already. Yeah, yeah. But maybe they're desperately trying to write the show now. Uh-huh. <laughs> I think it's an important part of discussion, isn't it, about how poetry can feed in. Yeah. to theatre work. Quite often shows seem like either the poetry is being forced into it or yeah. the narrative is being forced to encapsulate yeah. the poetry, doesn't it? I think that, that was one thing I was, I was really kind of conscious about was how do I make the two things coexist because I didn't want to feel like, and let's have a poetry break! And not be like really <laughs> cheesy. Um, I think, so I think that the turning point came when the literary associate Jackie um, at the playhouse said to me that you have to think about it as you would do a musical and you have to allow the poetry to be telling a story within it so that we're ready to go into the next scene with characters and I think once she said that I was like oh of course that makes sense I started listening to a, a Hamilton a lot there was a mm-hmm. lot of Hamilton listening and trying to figure out how can I allow the poetry to always push us forward same way as that I do when I look at a a scene and two characters in conversation they have to push the narrative forward they're not two separate things they're all they're both telling the same story or they're both trying to tell the same story support the same story so you, you can't look at them as two separate things then you have to consider what is the content of your poetry and what is the content of your scenes between your characters I definitely want to keep talking about this subject, but I think, I believe you're going to do a reading from Ode to Leeds, which is the work you're talking about now. 
I think that might be a nice segue into continuing that conversation. Yeah, so just kind of give you a bit more context. The, the piece opens with five poets on stage. The first poem is called, I'm going to start the poem. I kind of, well, you hear it with kind of just my voice, but then in the performance, it's going to be five poets kind of reading the piece together. The poet, they've varied in ages. So you have Queenie, who's 18, Davika, who is uh, 16, Mac, who's 14, Theo, who is 17, and Darcy, who is 15. I'm going to start the poem now. There's always a pause between the inhale and the first word. The room is silent. Butterflies collide, the words begin to rise up inside of you. Metaphors and similes contort like question marks, your mouth unhinges. You speak, while slowly pulling your chest open. You didn't write to have answers, you're trying to find your way with a broken compass for a heart, trying to survive a tsunami of awkward moments, trying to keep steady when the ground beneath you kept shifting, hoping that being born in God's own country meant blessings and prayers were answered, but... With each line that was written, the definition of the poem began to mutate as if being itself, like being the writer, is something it never wanted to inhibit. My body is a country I fled a long time ago. I'm sorry. I've said too much. I bent open like a book spine, exposed an untold story, excuse the stream of consciousness. There's so much the page can't catch all. I'm going to start the poem now. I want to be someone. But I'm afraid to be someone, 17, 14, 16, 15, 18, standing on the precipice of my own greatness, feeding like strange fruit, Billie Holiday, singing the blues for the black girl in Chapel Town that ain't no muse, for the black boys thought to be feared but taught to be inferior, complex, this life of haves and have-nots, tied around my voice box, your expectations of submission, of oppression, always misrepresent me, that's if I'm represented at all, I'm sorry. I've done it again. I'm a cracked dam. A flash flood of emotions excuse the stream of consciousness. There's so much the page can't catch at all. I'm going to start the poem now. Please. This city of mixed ancestry and uncertainty, of boarded up shops and heirloom council flats, of nostalgia and old photos curved in at the corners of migrant parents and bilingual tongues, of late night DMs and first love heartbreaks, of underground hip hop and vital readings on Wednesdays, of beauty and roughness in the same postcode of dreams passing like comets. Wait, what? Am I the comet or the dream? Prophet or follower, original, or copy, poet, or audience. Sorry, it's happened again, hasn't it? Sometimes I feel like a riddle without a solution. Excuse the stream of consciousness. There's so much the page can't catch it all. I'm going to start the poem now. I'm going to start. Thank you very much. I've got two points, and yeah. I, better, I better make them now because I haven't written them down properly, so I'll just so they're out there and they're on record. Going back to how you structure mm. this kind of work and the difference between, I suppose, writing poetry specifically for a play yeah. rather than trying to take a collection or a body of work that you may have worked on as a spoken word artist and mm -hmm. trying to form that into a show yeah. and what the differences are there. And I, I really want to talk some more about um, this idea of poems as lyrics that replace music from a musical because I think that's yeah. a really nice idea. I hadn't really, I suppose I've noticed it before in shows, but I hadn't thought of it quite like that <laughs> about how 
the, the poem can then move the narrative on and yeah. set up scenes in, in a way that songs would in a musical. I think it has to be. It has to be purposeful. Otherwise, you're, you're having a separate moment. You're saying this poem stands alone from the drama, but it shouldn't because the, the two things need to speak together. When I look at, I guess, kind of the, the creation for, for of the poetry in the play, I was very conscious that even though they are a group of young people who uh, want to compete at a poetry slam, I didn't want to create a play of 16 slam poems because that's a, that's a lot to take in. It's a piece of theatre as well. It's not a, a, a poetry slam that has moments of theatre in it. You know, it's a hybrid of the two things. So within it, there is moments where you have to build up and earn your slam poem. You have to earn that energy. You have to earn that challenge of an audience, you know, that provocation of an audience. Up until that point, which is kind of our midway point, you're getting to know the characters and you're getting to know them through their poetry. So some of the pieces are internalized. Some of them are shared between two characters. Some of them are... Kind of like asides, kind of treat them like kind of Shakespearean way, and you have your aside. You you have kind of theater conventions and see how you can utilize them to support the poetry that you're trying to use or create. It has to feel in sync. It has to feel like one complete piece. I think if you kind of take a pre-existing collection and then you try and force it to fit something or you try to force something around it and, you, and you're too afraid to edit like I, I edited a lot and I cut out a lot and I think it's that kind of when you go through that process of editing and not being afraid of that process and not being afraid of losing things that you feel like are your darlings you can come up with magic I think you just have to be brave enough to kind of see where it goes and I think that I, and I say this you know <laughs> after like 10 drafts but <laughs> um, but I, this is like not, now my third full-length play and then I've kind of done four or five kind of short plays but each time I had to learn that it's okay for me to not answer every question it's okay for me to not have all the answers so edit that piece and cut that bit out and see what that combination of text and actor and movement well, that's interesting. Like, so is there a temptation to give all the art? Is that what you're saying? There's... I think so. I think as a writer, you feel like you ha you, there's that burden. I think that's one of the things that, that I love about theatre is that it's collaborative. And as, as a poet, it was it was all down to me. I had to write and perform everything. And I was like, oh, huh. some days I just didn't want to. Or some days I would see or go to see a, p a piece of theatre and go, oh, that's a brilliant act. It would be great if I can fuse these two things together. And I think that's what I love about theatre is that I can I can bring the text, but then also appreciate the artistry of an actor or a sound designer or a lighting designer and see and a director and seeing kind of how we make this thing called theatre. And, and I think now I'm kind of getting more aware of that is that I will work my hardest. Don't get me wrong to kind of refine that text, but when an actor gets a hold of it and then they add their speciality on top of it and then a director comes on board we're making something together. So I don't feel that pressure that I have to answer everything because sometimes it isn't in how I've written it, it's how it's said, or it's how it's directed, or it's how it's lit. Yeah. yeah. That's a really interesting perspective. I suppose it's, maybe it's hard for poets to mm. ask those questions of themselves because quite often yeah. your work goes out and you don't see yeah. the work in action, do you? you don't see, in the act of writing and publishing, you don't actually see your work as art because it's, like, there's, a, there's a point to it where it only becomes art when it's experience mm -hmm. and you're not there are you no you know which yeah. is quite nice about spoken word because quite often you know yeah. you're performing it and you're seeing it happen but there's another element to it in which 
you allow other people to interpret yeah. actions and, yeah. and parts of the work and it and becomes I, a new thing. Yeah, yeah, I think I had, even kind of specifically looking at Otelays, I think I had to realise that, even when you look at kind of the, the casting, because we did both, where we looked for actors and looked at, do we, are we looking for actors that we can teach poetry to? Or are we looking for poets that we can teach how to act? Then you look at the time scale that's given for rehearsal period, which is like three to four weeks actually. And you go, well, ultimately we're making a piece of theatre and an audience has that expectation in their minds that if you come to a theatre, they're going to see a piece of theatre and they have a convention for that drama. So we go, let's get actors that we then can teach because they have to believably be poets on stage and it's not to take away from the craft of performing your own poetry I think it's trying to figure out the best possible way that we can allow the two things to exist because I think in, in writing the show I realized that it's incredibly technical and I don't think I, I got that before and I think when you work off of writing and performing your own work I don't know if you have that perspective of what you're doing and how extraordinary that thing that you're doing is until you have to ask somebody else to do it and I think for me that's also part of the brilliance I think of kind of going through this experience is that you then say to actors that I know you, you look at performance poetry as as something that isn't doesn't seem very technical and particularly if you do free verse you go ah oh, anybody could do that but it, it isn't actually it's, it's really technical so now when you start teaching actors about it and you go well I need you to be an actor get into your character, then allow that character to become a poet yeah. and then get a flow for your poetry. Oh, by the way, also there's music and there's movement yeah. and there's beatboxing. Then you mm. realise, yeah, it, it is quite a feat. And I think that is what I'm hoping to, to kind of do with the show is that we show that it's not this art form that you can just brush aside. It is complex and it is complicated and it is beneficial to these young people. It's more than what you get at kind of face value, I think. Nilo Sullivan, who runs Poetry Unplugged in London, is writing a series of blog posts at the moment, which are fantastic, and they're talking about performance poetry specifically mm. and the history of it and how to form a critical language around yeah. it, not to knock people down, but to realise what's going on and the mechanisms mm. of it, because quite often a lot of people see poetry on the television when it's read by actors, yeah. and there's a certain way that that's done. It's a really interesting point that you're making about, well, let the character read the poem instead of... I think maybe where it falls down is quite often the actors fall away, fall out of character and read yeah. the poem as, as they themselves. assume it should be read yeah. rather than letting the person that they're, they're supposed to be reading it. Yeah. So Ode to Leeds, was this a commission piece or how did this come about? So I was part of a group called Legion Authors when I first started writing in 2005. And I went, kind of went through that process of being part of a slam team that then went to compete in America. They kind of did that annually since like 2003. Then they had the documentary kind of made about them called um, We Are Poets. And as the poets that kind of I knew kind of went on to continue to kind of be a part of the group and kind of go off to their own things. When I then went into theatre, I was doing a writing course actually at the West Yorkshire Playhouse. And then I got nominated for the Channel 4 Playwrights Scheme. And I remember kind of going for that into this like kind of 2013 and kind of sitting in front of the panel and I was kind of t telling them about kind of what I had done. So I kind of did kind of spoken word and then I kind of went off and do these competitions in America and they're just like, oh, that'll make a really good play. 
And I was like, oh, okay, I didn't know about that. <laughs> so I kind of, the idea was kind of planted then and I kind of sat with it. So when I then won the Channel, Channel 4 Playwrights scheme, it was with my first play, Boy Boy's Dead. So the focus became, oh, let's do Boy Boy and then start the residency at the Playhouse. And then kind of underneath this thing, I was kind of simmering, trying to figure out how am I going to write this play and what will this play look like? One of the early thoughts that I had was that it was going to be five poets. I was really interested kind of in that format, just five young people telling their story and then when because uh, I was doing kind of residence in the playhouse we then kind of spoke about it and they said okay you know run with that idea and we'll see where we get to and they already had a relationship with Khadija Ibrahim um, who is the artistic director of leading authors so kind of towards the back end of my actually no, I, my, I finished my residency at the playhouse and then Boy Boy's Dead went on and then towards the back end of that year which was 2015 they said okay we're gonna commission you to start writing this play you know, I initially kind of just took the time to figure out what it was. And I played with um, some of the poems that I'd written in, in the past, trying to figure out what the heck I was trying to do. <laughs> and like the first draft is like nothing compared to like the existing draft now. And that's kind of how the, the play kind of came about, is that we then started bringing in Testament, who is the beatboxing rapper, because I knew once we kind of got into like the R&D stage that I wanted to figure out if it was working, if like kind of the two conventions were working together. So we kind of tested out. So in the play, there's music and there's beatboxing and there's rapping and there's singing and acting. And <laughs> so we, we did that over kind of course of a week, I think it was. And we just played around to try and figure it out. And then kind of once we knew what the key points were of the play. Then I kind of went back and kind of did drafts over drafts over drafts, kind of mostly last year until mm -hmm. they said, okay, cool, we're going to program it. And I believe that very soon people are going to be able to see. They are, yes. The, it opens the on the 10th of June and it runs until the 1st of July in Leeds. And where would that be on? At the West Yorkshire Playhouse. At the West Yorkshire Playhouse. Yeah. So, um, unfortunately, we're running out of time. I think we should finish on a third reading. I was thinking of doing a poem called Black Bodies, which actually is, is another one that's like poem slash play because I did it for the Front Exchange last year. So last year in January, there was a story in the news about a woman called Sarah Reed who had died in police custody. And I remember there was one Guardian article about her. Uh, they'd done an interview with her mother. And then there was like a couple of tweets and then that was it. And there was like no kind of mention of her. I saw that and it bothered me that we had moved on. And during that time, there was a lot of talk around kind of Black Lives Matter and the Say Her Name campaign. And I thought, okay, cool. We need to do that for her. We need to put her up and say her name. So I wrote this and it was performed at the Royal Exchange last year. And then I just kind of kept it. And I think there's something more to be done with it. So this is Black Bodies. Black bodies are Sarah, Marilyn's daughter, mother, sister, Sarah, daughter, mother, sister. Black bodies have names. Black bodies have mothers, fathers, sisters, brothers, grandparents. Black bodies have friends. Black bodies are women. Black bodies are men. Black bodies are children. Black bodies are black as oil. Black as tar. Black as night. Black bodies are blacklisted. Black birds. Cage birds. Black bodies are trying to escape. Black bodies are prisons. Burial grounds. Black bodies are schools. 
hospitals, black bodies are sectioned, black bodies are disappearing, black bodies are wearing masks, are rocks and hard places, forgetting the sounds of their own voices, forgetting they are the old bones of the city, black bodies are creation, black bodies are the universe, black bodies are crescent moons, constellations, black bodies are endless, love. The rise and fall of a lover's chest. Black bodies are warm, soft kisses. Thighs parting milk and honey. Black bodies are worthy of a love that doesn't hurt. Worthy of life. Worthy of praise. Black bodies are spirits. Calls to God. Black bodies are prayers. Black bodies are miracles. Hallelujahs. Spirituals. Sermons. Scriptures. Black bodies are anointed. Boastful believers. Faithful confessions. Black bodies are temples. Ancient wisdoms. Ruins. Black bodies are collapsed walls are taught to weather the storm are taught to be the calm are taught to be the sun be beauty be everything be nothing be divided black bodies are questions black bodies have questions black bodies are questioning seeking black bodies are the answer black bodies are gold Diamonds, melanin, magic, good days, black bodies in lighthouses, symphonies, hope, happiness, dancing, poetry, black bodies are promises, excellence, divine, royalty, empires, kings, queens, manor houses, land, black bodies not too proud or not too outspoken or not too hysterical or not too loud, not too sassy, not too angry, black bodies are not too menacing, black bodies are not too ghetto. Black bodies are not too eloquent, not too complicated. Black bodies are not too ungrateful. Black bodies are not too immature. Black bodies are not too dishonest, not too lazy, not too nostalgic. Black bodies are flesh and bones. Black bodies are fragile. Black bodies bruise when beaten, scar when cut. Black bodies are not target practice. Black bodies are holding their hands up. Black bodies are last breaths, candlelit vigils, endless elegies, afterthoughts. Black bodies are imperfect victims. Black bodies are hidden. Black bodies are political statements, votes, rhetoric, legacies, activists. Black bodies are movements. Black bodies are riots. Black bodies are revolutions, radical protests, die-ins, clenched fists. Black bodies are boycotts. Black bodies are hashtags, viral. Black bodies matter. Black bodies are Sarah, Marilyn's daughter, mother, sister. Black bodies are Sarah, Marilyn's daughter. Black bodies matter. Thank you very much, Sodwa. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. Next up is Javad Alipur, and as with Zodwa, we talk about poetry and theatre making. We discuss the role, if any, that artists can play in political change. His new play, The Believers Are But Brothers, and how the thorny issues of regeneration and aspiration inform his writing. And on that note, it was interesting to think about how the term regeneration differs in meaning in West Yorkshire and where I live in South London. This is obviously in part to some issues of privilege when it comes to living in a disproportionately funded capital city, but I think also highlights how we all need to do more to stop local government and councils branding what is clearly social cleansing as regeneration. From this introduction, you might gather that this chat is a little bit politically charged. Here's Javad. My name is Javad Alipur. I'm a theatre maker, a writer, director, a bit of a performer um, in some other stuff as well. 
I run a theatre company called Northern Lines, of which I'm artistic director, and I'm associate director at the Crucible Theatre in Sheffield and Theatre in the Mill in Bradford. I sort of work nationally and internationally, but kind of the North and Yorkshire is like a big part of my identity and what in some ways drives how I see the world politically and artistically. So given that I've been spending a lot of time in Sheffield recently, I'd like to start with a poem that's kind of about the history of Sheffield. A few years ago, I was um, working on a project in the rehearsal room of the Lyceum Theatre there. And you sort of stare out over the, the moors and there's a quite controversially regenerated block of flats that are run by a company called Urban Splash. And one of the things that they do is that they put these really bright coloured doors on the apartment block so as to sort of show you it's them that's done it. It just struck me as kind of quite incongruous given that the rest of the apartment blocks still look kind of like drab and like the council flats we grew up in rather than the yuppie flats we aspire to live in, you know? Um, so this poem's about just seeing that. Sheffield, your summer sky seems as grey to me as Tarkovsky's Akasaka. It's seen strikes and strife and civil war and it's dotted now by Disney-coloured high-rise doors set amongst trees and rocks like Sicilian villas in The Godfather. Sheffield, you've been re-rendered, re-edited and re retouched for HD. But whilst your editors slap backs to congratulate each other, you're always in black and white to me. You're more a picture of pickets where each pixel is visible, copied then projected till it's worse than original, illustrating talks in rooms that pubs hold functions in, of skin scar black where a copper stuck his truncheon in. You picks a stripped out houses where bailiffs have entered, on burnt out streets that are guarded regimented by SAS men in civvy uniform who beat men to death on next door's lawn. You snap squads, torture squads, flying squads and pickets, scrabbling on a slaggy trying to find something to nick it, giving half to defence funds to help out flying pickets. Someone's face is bleeding, Braid again by plod. Someone's getting brave and joining a hit squad, and that's why. Though summer is never easy under your grayscale sky, when I think of you, I will never think of bright multicolored scenes of digital lights or those Disney colored doors suspended in the heights. I'll see two pictures, both monochrome, made of deep blacks and crisp popping whites. The first of a whole city become a place of siege warfare and torture, the second of a miner holding up a sign he just wrote. Welcome to People's Republic of South Yorkshire. Thank you very much, Joanna. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. How are you doing? I'm good, thanks. Good. You said that horrible word regeneration there. Yeah. They're currently destroying the part of South London I live in, yeah. putting up fancy signs and <laughs> getting us to aspire to things. How much do these ideas of regeneration and, and aspiration play into your work? That's a really interesting question. I mean, I think the, f the first point I'd make is really quite a political one more than a, a kind of cultural or artistic one. For me, like that notion of regeneration is like one of the things that I think as kind of um, people who are concerned with kind of communities and, 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 and people being able to like have a decent life. I think one of the things that we've sort of failed to do really is unpick the different contradictory ways that the notion of regeneration works. So, you know, I grew up and spent a lot, lot of my time, like, for instance, in Bradford. And in Bradford, like, regeneration agendas, broadly really, really positive things. You know, there's a really interesting artistic and cultural scene in Bradford, but one of the, one of the problems is there isn't necessarily the infrastructure and institution to kind of support that to go to the next level. So stuff kind of ebbs and falls just based on kind of who's around. There's no centre of gravity that allows something kind of progressive to be built. So I think what's really interesting when you get that South London example is like regeneration in somewhere like Bradford, do you know what I mean, means something a bit like here's some breaks for businesses, cultural businesses in the city centre of tax, here's maybe some money for an art centre or a youth centre, 
it doesn't necessarily, do you know what I mean? Like, and then there's like the South London thing where regeneration means here come the barbarous hordes of yuppies, do you know what I mean? <laughs> like, who are going to like yeah. rip everything, rip everyone in from them and sort of take everything over. And, and you know, if whether you're talking about certain parts of Wesley's, whether you're talking about Central Bradford, like the lawyer's about to arrive and take it from, that's not a problem we've got, do you know what I mean? But yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I think that for me, the big question that a lot of my work is looking at at the minute tends to be around emergent politics and emergent, political actors. I feel like we're living in a moment where the 21st century is being born, like it's the train is smashing into us at some quite dramatic speed. And whether that's stuff like the way that technology is changing people, the way people live and engage with each other and see the world and actually what it means to be a human, whether it's about this big question of international migration, which is only going to increase when kind of ecological collapse starts to bite in the next 10, 20 years, or whether that's about the big political divide starting to shape up like the old right and left division, a bit being replaced by a division that's about kind of a liberal internationalism on one side and a populist nationalism on the other, you know. Um, so yeah, for me, what, what unites all this stuff is like, you were talking about aspiration and regeneration and stuff. I, I come from a quite a political background. I was interested in politics before I was interested in art. It's interesting that all those old certainties, you know, we, we used to, you know, when we talk about like these big political categories, and that is tied to aspirations, you know what I mean? That is tied to people do things because they, because of the, the life they would like to have. I come from a political tradition, I think, where, that would have perceived, for instance, the international working class as the, the people who were broadly going to bring us like more freedom and justice and stuff like that. And in terms of aspiration, it's interesting, just now we're really beginning to see and be able to smell like quite how much the changes of the past 30 years have kind of destroyed that language of identity. And, you know, we look at the current issues within the Labour Party and how the Labour Party is struggling to galvanise its votes. You know, we see throughout the 20th century, whenever the Labour Party could win an election, whenever the left could do well in this country, it was because they could unite basically three political tribes. And it went some folk in cities in Scotland, people who lived around the great industrial cities and coalfields of the north, and the cosmopolitan international kind of working class and lower middle class of London. And now we just see how much that's fractured. Do you know what I mean? How if you're someone who's from a kind of small town in South Yorkshire, uh, you know, we heard a lot during the Brexit campaign about this sort of left behind people who struggle in that, whether or not that's actually what power it is, is a different discussion. But yeah, that great tribe that once existed, you know, I, I now sort of live in Manchester city centre. I work in the arts, like, uh, a lot of my colleagues and friends are people who are, you know, touch wood, I'm, you know, touch wood, you know, we're surviving and stuff, but like, people aren't paid an awful lot of money to do that kind of stuff, do you know what I mean? Like, but, so you get people with a similar standard of living, a similar economic sort of vibe, but very much more kind of likely to have friends of different ethnicities, have a very different attitude to the EU and stuff like that, whereas someone who kind of voted exit and was from a smaller town, or whatever, you know, I think what, what I'm really interested in is like the emergence of a new world and a new political consciousness and new political actors. And I think that absolutely, especially as a theatre maker, you know, there's the old sort of Chekhovian cliche about uh, if you want to know who someone is, you have to know what they want. Almost uh, you know, 90% of rehearsal rooms in kind of Anglo-American theatre is working out what characters want and why, mm -hmm. do you know what I mean? So absolutely, yeah, that's a, it's a really central question. This is the 24th of uh, April. And within the last week or so, there's, we've found out there's going to be a general election coming up and a lot of artists are 
questioning what their place is in this dialogue, trying to unite people. And as you're saying, everything's been fractured. And what that's going to sound like a really depressing question. Mm. Can art make any difference in this? And can it make a difference in uniting people when artists seem to be, and I might be wrong on this, but they seem to be celebrating an individualism, which isn't the same as being selfish, but we've reached the point where people want to be who they are and they don't want to be necessarily part of groups, it seems. Mm. A lot of artists are working towards that way. I think for me, like, this, this what do you call it, a hoary old question of what kind of social uh, effect art can have. There's obviously the really boring answers, but that are just true, like in terms of like, in general engagement with the arts helps like, uh, so audiences or participants in general, there's benefit to wellness and well-being and mental health and blah, 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 mm. blah, 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 boring, boring, boring. In terms of, in terms of the big, that, that big, how do we affect political change? I would go in the first instance, we don't. In and of itself, there isn't necessarily a link. I don't think it's the job of art and artists to change the world through their work. I think it's the job of artists as citizens and as people, if they care about politics, to find a thing to do. Do you know what I mean? You know, I was part of a group of people who put together, just after the EU vote, I put together an organisation called Bradford Says Everyone Stays, and we did a big demo in support of the right of EU migrants to stay in this country. And if I love what we were, like, my issue with this, uh, this question, especially in theatre, like, I very much resist my work being labelled as political theatre because not to put too fine a point on it, I've seen quite a lot of that stuff and it's often not great theatre and there's no real political depth, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Mm. First and foremost, like, I always start from a position, you, it doesn't, art doesn't change politics, art is a different thing and you do it for different reasons. I suppose they're related in the sense that they're both about truth in some way or another, but I think they're very different kinds of truths. Having said that, there are clearly historical moments where works of art galvanise massive moments of social change. But I think there's something quite interesting to be said about that. I think what we confuse as artists is our power as artists, socially, very, 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 very tiny, with the power of a handful of celebrity artists to do stuff. So we end up with these sorts of bizarre, like, artist-led movements to do things and what have you. And, and actually, like, you think, well, what power do we have? Art has spent the vast majority of its life in you know, the Western tradition, like basically pimping itself to rich people to get sponsorship. Government money helped to democratise that a bit, but there's still a lot of that pimping that goes on, do you know what I mean? We, we come from a weak place, do you know what I mean? When we, when we think of ourselves as artists, I think. Uh, but there, there are these moments where art really galvanises a moment. But when that happens, I don't think that's about artists doing things as artists. It's when there's a real social movement that artists happen to be into because they're connected as kind of human beings struggling for those stuff together. No, I, I completely and then, agree. Yeah, yeah something yeah. kind of happens and catches. I think there's a really, really rich and interesting discussion about what the relationship between politics and art is. Um, and I think there's a really sophisticated and profound one. And as I say, like, there are probably these incredible historical moments. I'm on my father's side, I'm of Iranian origin. And one of the sort of not very well-known stories about the Iranian revolution is 79, that whatever happened afterwards was a was a, uh, a huge uprising of the mass of the people against a brutal American-backed dictator, horrendous secret police and so on, overthrown by the mass of the people. During the lead up to that, the old regime, the Shah's regime, they briefly sort of uh, liberalised a little bit some of the laws on cultural censorship and so on. As a result of that, the, weirdly, like the Goethe Institute in Tehran, um, some students, some sort of lefty theatre-making students approached them and said, like, look, you know, can we produce some plays here as a test ground to see how liberal the regime has got? 
And so stuff that you weren't allowed to do because of the Shah's pro-American way of looking at the world and, and kind of supporters and stuff. So they decided to do some Brecht in the gardens of the Goethe Institute. I directed, the, one of the shows was directed by a, a big hero of mine, really, is an Iranian director called Sultan Pul, tragically uh, executed and murdered in 1983 by the, the new regime. He was a member of one of the urban guerrilla groups, philosopher, and uh, sort of theatre director and what have you. He directed this show. This brilliant story about him that previous to this, he'd gone to jail three times, um, been by the secret police locked him up three times. And it happened after each of his shows opened. And famously, like the third time, he'd written this like absurdist comedy about life in the, sh in the Shah's Iran. And he always, in his memoirs and stuff, he always joked about like, he, he liked to, he said, I think it's quite a, what you call it, slightly um, uh, egotistical job. He would say like, it was the absurdist comedy that he wrote was that kind of like dense or whatever, that usually he got arrested on press night. But with the absurdist show, it was up for four nights before the secret police realised <laughs> what it was he was saying. So they put some shows on in the Goethe Institute and it just caught fire. And people were queuing around the corner for this little moment of freedom that they'd been denied for decades. The queues got bigger and bigger and bigger. The actors took the shows out, were just doing them like completely unrehearsed, like in front of people instead of in the institute itself. The police came, started to smash the protesters. The protesters refused to be smashed. And that's one of the things that began the rolling chain of events that brought down that regime. Now, is that like an artist going, how am I going to change this world with this show? No, that's, that's what I mean about he's, you're part of something bigger, you're part mm -hmm. of a movement, and you're, you happen to be an artist, do you know what I mean? I wanted to just talk about like, the, the importance of poetry and lyricism in your day-to-day -day work in yeah. theatre, and what role it plays, and whether it's a separate thing or whether they do blur it all. Yeah, no, absolutely, man. I mean, I, um, there's a whole debate at the minute in theatre about like, sort of the nature of theatre making, and like, there's, so some of our big institutions still very much work on a model that's dominated for about 100 years of kind of commissioning work where either a director pitches a play to the artistic director or potentially a writer pitches a play. But long and short of it is someone writes a play or someone picks up a play that's already been written and they're a lead artist and then they spend, if they're a writer, they get six months. If they're a director, they maybe get a month prepping it. And then designers commission, get in a rehearsal room, four weeks rehearsal, you know, preview, 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 press night, boom, done, go home which is cool and there's really great work that comes out of that. But there's also a increasing acknowledgement that there are people who make theatre in other ways where, so you tend to hear that people, such people describe themselves as theatre makers, uh, implying that there is a, a broader sort of sense of collaboration and there isn't such a hard distinction between like writer, director, designer and stuff like that. And yeah, man, I, I kind of, most of my stuff I write and direct. It tends to be quite a collaborative process with like a designer and actors and stuff as well. And as a writer, one of my best mates, mentor, all this other stuff is a, a brother called Madney Eunice, who's AD of the Bush now, who I knew when he, I mean, I got into all this stuff through him running the Asian Theatre School in Bradford in the day. He didn't really write anymore, but when he wrote, he was one of those people who had a kind of semi-devised process and he once said to me a wonderful thing about the sense of lyricism of a text. He said, bro, if when the rehearsal's finished, if you can't go home and write a more intense version of the things that the actors were saying when they were in the space, you need to fucking stop writing. <laughs> yeah. And I, thought, I sort of took that with me really. And I am, as a maker, as an artist in theatre, like text is really, really important to me. And I'm kind of often, when I, when I sort of see a show in my head, when I'm putting it together, I'm often looking, to be honest, I mean, you know, people, some people are 
we like kind of design and visually, do you know what I mean? Uh, music and text gets me going, do you know what I mean? Music mm. and text. And I'm always reaching out to people to help me with movement side of things and visual side of things. And, and I'm, I'm kind of, I'm, you know, when I'm writing or if I'm directing something someone else has written, I'm often looking for those moments where a turn of phrase or whatever sort of just sums up the whole thing. And I think that both in terms of text and in terms of movement, what really interests me is, so I, like one of my big kind of aspirations as a young writer was I, I wanted to be as good as Sarah Kane. I loved Sarah Kane when I first started reading it. I thought, mm. I thought I'm like, this, it's the politics and arts question. I thought here is someone whose work isn't about politics. She's going to write stories about politics. Her politics and the questions she's asking are absolutely coded in to the formal qualities of the thing. Um, and for me, one of the really interesting things about that style of text, whether, you know, that, that, about that style of kind of like post-absurdist, like really kind of dark, really substantially political work, what's interesting is when naturalism breaks down. And I think that can happen in a number of different ways. Obviously, it can happen in a kind of sense of magical realism or whatever, but massively in terms of hitting elevated text. So a very verbose way of saying, <laughs> uh, I like things to sound elevated, you know, uh, where that's relevant. In terms of my process, I suppose my work has sometimes been described as dense or complex, which some people I think mean as a good thing. I think some people think mean as a bad thing, but that's cool. That's horses for courses. And, and I think when you're so coming up with the idea, this idea, you know, it's like when you're making something like you're not sure what it is you're making until you've made it. And a really important part of that for me in terms of trying to just begin to like narrow down to like what is the actual thing we're doing is writing some stuff. And often that comes out as a prosy essay sometimes. It sometimes comes out as a poem or whatever. And it sometimes comes out as like a little bit of fiction or whatever. And that's like an initial provocation for people. Do you know what I mean? And it, you know, it also helps like in terms of the business of running a, this is obviously in terms of the work I do in, in, in kind of buildings is very different. It maybe is a little bit more like that, that other model, but like in terms of like running a company and getting out there and getting co-producers and stuff, you know, it's always really important to be able to have something that you can actually take to scratch nights and stuff and go, this is what we're doing, who wants to come and play, do you know what I mean? Yeah. And in terms of uh, developing and putting stuff together, you were, we were talking briefly before the microphones went on that you just had a show happen as part of a festival, which is now touring, but maybe you could just tell us a bit about that yeah, that's... and where people can check it out. And... Oh, absolutely, man. That'd be brilliant. Like, we've, um, so it's called The Believers Are But Brothers. And it's the first time I've done that like solo performer thing. Yeah. I've not done that before. I perform, I've done, you know, I've done, as I said, I've done spoken word gigs. I said my first love was music before theatre, so being in bands and stuff as a kid and what have you. In terms of like that, that sort of solo model of, of work, I hadn't done that before. So I sort of, it felt like, it felt like something I wanted to play with. Believers Abbott Brothers is a show about, it came out of, I was on Twitter and I was reading the, there was this Guardian article about so-called Isis Brides. And there were some like Twitter accounts that you could like talk to, that you could uh, follow of these people, these young women who'd gone off to join ISIS. I thought, fucking hell, I'm just gonna follow them. I'm sending them a DM, see if I'm gonna talk, talk to them. Like, and I, I, I sort of noticed this whole world of like, basically everyone in the world is on Twitter making an argument for their politics. So the Taliban have an official Twitter account, right? They, they tweet under the name Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan. One of the most insane, surreal things I've ever seen on, on, uh, on Twitter was, the Twitter account of the Taliban getting into an argument with, I swear to God, getting into an argument with uh, the US Supreme Command in Afghanistan Twitter account over whether or not a helicopter that had been shot down was an American one. It was absolutely insane. And I, I just started noticing that the way that kind of ISIS propaganda into young Muslims in Europe works 
He's got no theological depth. He's got no political depth. I'm, you know, I'm, as I'm quite a political person, I have uh, most of my family are in the global south. Even though my mum's English, got a much more Iranian family than I have English family, and there's a whole way of looking at the world that kind of influences me to do. And one of the interesting things about so-called these Muslim radicals, quote unquote, radicals, is that that package of words that I would use to think about politics, colonialism, post-colonialism, racism, Islamophobia, these words never come out. Do you know what I mean? No one uses these. What you see is, A, a kind of apocalyptic hatred and love of a cult of violence and masculinity, and a kind of visual language which is very much derived from Call of Duty, Assassin's Creed, Game of Thrones, stuff like that, like uh, a, a kind of computer game fantasy world. Like, So uh, two things struck me about that. One was that that's not a million miles away from some kinds of British army marketing. And another was that that's very, very different to kind of the, the, the if you like, the dominant narrative we have in Europe of like why someone would carry out something like the Bataclan Massacre. And especially with the rise of Donald Trump and the rise of this thing called the alt-right, and kind of, if you like, an quote-unquote online radicalization that seems to be affecting white young men around groups like 4chan, Reddit, and stuff like that in the States. I was like, yeah, this seemed like a, a vein to furrow, really. So, so yeah, the show is like, it tells three stories. Young American guy who gets involved with like, the alt-right and so on. A young British Muslim who tries to go off and join ISIS. And a young British Muslim who goes to Syria to carry out humanitarian work and gets caught in a whole bunch of other stuff. So I tell some of the stories, there's a bit of storytelling, a bit of acting, and quite a lot of technology. So the audience have their phones on throughout, because as I said, this is, it's kind of about online radicalization in that way. And um, and so uh, about a third of the show happens on your phone, whilst mm. I'm sort of talking and stuff. Um, so there's I'm doing stuff and the characters are WhatsApping you and blah, blah, blah. And a whole bunch of stuff happens over projection. And yeah, so it's kind, it's kind of about, it, not to put too fine a point on it, it's about the internet, men, and whatever the hell seems to be going international politically, like this, this madness, do yeah. you know what I mean? This like cycle of and extremes. And where violence. can people check out about dates and yeah, so get to see it? I've got, my company's got a website, northernlines.org.uk, but that's likely to change in the next couple of months. We are going to be at the at Oval House in London at... Oh, Summer Hall. My at... local theatre. Brilliant. Tell me when that's happening, I'll come. That'd be brilliant, man. There's a couple of nice pubs near there as well, like we'll go for a bev after. Yeah, we'll be at the Fringe, and then we'll be at uh, a festival that's at home theatres in Manchester later in the year. Excellent. I think that's probably a good place to stop. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, we'll finish with a final reading, please. Thank you. Um, this, this is a poem that came out of Making Believers Are But Brothers. So it's kind of not exactly about the same stuff. It's, to be honest, it's a little bit more optimistic than the show is. Not all that optimistic, but we, it's, it's called When the Machine Breaks Down, a love song for the recent anti-Trump protesters. Do not give up. Do not think for one second you are not fighting hard enough. Do not think you're not doing enough. Do not think it's over. Do not think they've won. Do not think this is not a threat. When the machine breaks down, we break down. Do not leave your luggage where it might not be seen. Do not loiter. Do not look directly into the sun. When the machine breaks down, we break down. Do not think this does not apply to you. Do not shrink behind the brown or more Muslim woman ahead of you. Do not ignore what that lad just shouted from his car. Do not travel without ID. When the machine breaks down, we break down. Do not stop near the borderline or disobey the border sign. When the machine breaks down, we break down. Do not look the officer in the eye. Do not ask for extra food. 
Walk. Do not stop. Do not drink the muddy water. Don't falter. When the machine breaks down, we break down. We, we who stand at the gates of Vienna, washed up in Greece and in Rome, we're the ones with nothing to carry and the clothes we've been wearing since home, we're the screwdriver flashing in darkness, the cold and the thudding of mud, we're the ones with the violin playing a song that's not yet understood, we're the ocean of crowds run together, we're the pushing and smashing the gate, we're the hate transforming to love, we're the love transforming to hate, when the machine breaks down, we break down. Do not think too deeply about the last thing he said to you. Do not sink back too far when he touches you. Don't overanalyze, don't overthink. Don't overeat and don't overdrink. Do not push yourself too hard. Do not not apply yourself. Do not look down at your hands. When the machine breaks down, we break down. Do not read the news too early or too often. Do not mention the crack in the Arctic. Do not dream of mustard gas and napalm gurgles. Do not remember Aleppo as roses fell from the sky. Those electric diamond nights of lights when Christians spent Fridays arm in arm round Tahrir Square, protecting all the Muslims who were reading prayers there. Do not imagine what just might get us out of here when the machine breaks down. When the machine breaks down. When the machine breaks down. When the machine breaks down, we break down and sweat shines lines on our faith cut face at dawn. We don't tremble when we pray because we cry each night away in love of the Most High. So our fingers quiver waiting until our lips unhesitating sing that song that they long to bring. Of the cities that burned in the fire that takes everything, do not mourn for Carthage. Do not search for meaning in the soldiers' footprints. Do not count the books burned in our libraries or the shards of glass and marble on the temple floor. We make that salted tillage. Our fathers blasphemed graves, not a sign of things to come but an ending of an age. A rule of roses and of guns. A renewal of the suns when the machine breaks down. When the machine breaks down when the machine breaks down when the machine breaks down we break down at the edge of a vast and endless sea breaking at the hips bending at the knee we reach our hands and count each of those infinity of stars above that shine so liquidly and we mumble a prayer an invocation invitation through our cracked and blackened lips when we break down when we break down when we break down the machine breaks down Cause we're a glimpse of new worlds coming. We're the gathering of the crowds. We're the storm that's coming, baby, in those grey and brooding clouds. We're not scared of new tomorrows. We've not much to lose, you see. So we say what no one's saying whilst we dream of being free. We're the bird whose wings are broken and we're bleeding on the floor. But that dove that's done with singing is a crow well fed for war. We come from every nation with violins and guns, with cigarettes and cups of wine and pens carving out in overtime. We're the ones who make the paths clear, clean and straight. Hate transforming love, love purifying hate. When the machine breaks down, when the machine breaks down, when the machine breaks down, we break down. Thanks very much, Jubad. Thank you. Thank you very much for joining us. I will endeavour to put as many of the links that are relevant to what we've been talking about in the episode description. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure.